When I'm looking at my prep sheet right now, I think the word for the show is eclectic. It is going to span a pastor talking about smartphones all the way maybe to Kanye West. That more on this week's Corey Truax Show. This is the best thing, the best thing that could be happening. And I think you would agree the best thing is that it's happening to you and me. As is fairly often, a lot of the show this week is generated by you, the listener, including this Kanye West topic, because apparently he's found Jesus, or at least that's what he's saying, so we're certainly going to talk about that. I'm going to start with another email from you, and then Matt Chandler, I think the greatest communicator in all of Christianity, blew my mind here recently with some points he made about smartphones. It's stuff that I sort of knew, but he... he uh, he informed me of some things I didn't know, or maybe he just built out my knowledge. So we're going to talk about that. Second, there's lots to do. We're going to get started right after I do this. Hi there, my name is Corey Truax. I'll be your host for the show. That works out well, as I typically say, because my name is on the show. Thank you for listening on His Radio Talk 91 and 92.9 FM. Glad to have you live on Saturday morning. Or if you are listening on the podcast, whether that be over at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, CoreyTruax.com, Google Play, and all the various and sundry places where this show is broadcast, thank you for listening. Always grateful for your listenership, and when you give me feedback, it's always very helpful. It's actually what makes the show possible, because I am not interesting enough to do this show by myself. I'm also the pastor for teaching at Beachwood Church. Beachwood Church meets in Greenville, South Carolina on 123 in between Easley and Greenville, you are welcome any Sunday morning at 10.30 for Beachwood Church. I'm going to start with an email from Pamela. I have a listener named Pamela. Who knew? Maybe I have more than one. She was listening back to some of the old shows. Not too long ago, I said of the Genesis account of creation that I didn't find it to be a necessity for... It's, it's not a necessity of faith... To, to believe the Genesis account is absolutely literal, the, the account of creation. I, I had a great email from Martin, one of our, one of our listeners, who, uh, I, I wouldn't say called me out, but he challenged me on that and did it in a really, a very effective way. And her angle on my, my take is a little different. So where, where Martin wrote in to say, hey man, I, I think uh, you, you, you got to be careful about saying that kind of stuff about the Bible, the the perspective for Pamela is well what what about your what about your take on evolu- on evolution itself so you're you're saying that the Genesis account does not have to be taken literally to be inside of orthodoxy you can be a Christian and inside of orthodoxy even if you don't believe the Genesis account is literal but the other narrative we have is Darwinian evolution so what are your thoughts on that uh, so I'm gonna here we go. Every time I do something new, I don't know why I fear you people so much. I don't want you to stop listening, but here here we go. My, I, I, tr- I try to be consistent in that my standard is, is logic and reason. And I know I have some secular folks listen to the show, but here's where I've stood. I'll, I'll tell you a story. I think it was 2012, maybe 2013, I went through a period of time where I really wanted to study the theory of evolution. Like, really dig in and understand. Because one of the things that my secular friends would say to me when I would criticize evolution is, you don't understand it. You don't actually get what's happening here. 
And so I, I had a friend from, uh, I, I worked at another Christian university before I worked at uh, North Greenville University, and a, a student I knew there, he was also a friend from high school, uh, who t- totally left the faith. Obviously, you don't leave the, you're, he was never in the faith, truly, but uh, he's a very aggressive, outspoken atheist now, but he's also a brilliant biologist. Just uh, he, he, I think he's in academia out in Missouri some now, somewhere now. I also have another friend who, again, renounced his renounced his faith, but a super smart guy. And he would say the same thing to me. The thing you're criticizing is it real? You set up a straw man. You don't really understand evolution. And so, I went to the uh, to the website for the. Uh, what is that called? The uh, Smithsonian Museum of Natural History? I think it is, Natural History. And they actually had a section called Evidence for Evolution. I was like, okay, let's do this thing. Let's dive in. And I remember spending a good week on that website reading every, maybe an hour a day or something, but reading everything they had on Darwinian evolution because I, so, I sort of wanted to be convinced. Like I wanted them to, to, to make some a compelling truth and teach me all the stuff I didn't know. And so while I don't, but here's where I concluded, while I don't think holding to a, a, a literal version of Genesis is necessity for faith in Jesus, it's, it's not a necessity for orthodoxy, the theory of evolution is not rational. Its, it's, it's logic is inconsistent. I think there's a great, not just I think, but you can even listen to an NPR podcast called Radio Lab. There, there are folks in the in different parts of the sciences that are now poking holes on it and saying, "I don't know. I, I, we're, we're not we're not positing God created everything, but we think Darwin missed some stuff." You know, in the in the field of psychology, a lot of the stuff that uh, Sigmund Freud came up with is now been debunked, and they don't they don't practice psychology that way anymore. And in the same way, Darwin having this theory. It's it's being questioned, and it's not above reproach. I, I think I properly do understand the theory of evolution. I think Pamela's wanting to know, do I, do I find it credible? No. As an origin story, the idea that time, what ends up happening here is time becomes God. Because you you set out to the, to the evolution, it's a very real challenge. The, the body is so complex I'll give you just one example. The the acid in our stomachs is the the exact right type of acid, and it's and and the chemicals in our stomach are the exact right thing to break down foods in a way that we can use them as nutrition. Like it's it's the exact perfect thing, and there's a a layer of our abdomen that it would burn through, but there's a inner coating in our stomachs that it's just the right thing. It's just the right substance that it does not burn through to that next level. If you just go through the, di- the digestive system and you start working through all the intricacies that's just in your trachea, and all the, inter- the, the old cr- Christian thing was the, a mousetrap only has three parts. That's what the old apologist did. And if any one part isn't working, the thing is not fully there. The human, the human body, and, and we would say... For, for even something as simple as the mousetrap, we recognize that there had to be a creator of it. The human body is so much more, it, it's, it is so much more complex. I, I, I got, when you get into DNA, I mean, the Human Genome Project should settle this. 
when you get into the fact that we're, we're talking about enough information, like you have enough DNA to fill up all the books in the Library of Alexandria, just, just coursing through you right now. And if any one of those is out of order, like you're not a, you're not a human. And it's so much complexity. The idea that randomly it would happen, it's not a credible, it's not a credible idea. It's outside of credibility to assume that it happened by chance. Like it, it is almost a science. It is. It would have to be called a scientific miracle that we exist at all. One of the illustrations I've given in the past is if you if you just walk into your house and you see a cake on the counter, you assume someone made a cake. The one thing you know is not possible is that if in in your house all of the ingredients of a cake were there and they brought themselves together to make the cake with no outside force. What, what evolutionists say back is time. If you give it enough time, time does everything. Enough time and variations, you're going to get to the world that we have. And I, I don't find that credible. I don't find that rational. There is too much design in the universe to uh, to to say it all just evolved that way. To even to the extent that I I know I have people that I think I would consider to be in the faith. They would call themselves, I guess, theistic evolution, evolutionist, where, yeah, uh, God did it, but he used evolution as the tool. I, I don't think that's credible. I think God's smarter than that. Evolution is an unbelievably uh, inefficient system. So while I'm, I'm going to come, i got to finish this up. I can't spend the whole show on this. It's a good email from Pamela. I, so no, I don't think believing Genesis is, an abs- is absolute literal is necessary for faith. But no, the other the secular world's version of how we got here doesn't meet the minimum standard of logic. And so, no, I'm not on board. Thanks for that email. Uh, because I only have a few minutes left in this segment, uh, and I, I, when, we come, when we come back from the break, I have something from Matt Chandler I want to play for you. It's kind of long, so I don't want to get started. Let me do on my prep sheet. There's one, another from a listener. Uh, Wayne wrote in a couple weeks ago, and I teased on last week's episode that I was going to talk about this. And then I forgot, and I ran out of time, because that's what I do. So Wayne had an interesting idea. I I said on a recent episode that I I didn't want the Republicans to cancel the Republican primary in South Carolina. And one of his responses to that was, well, of course they should, because now all the Republicans can go vote in the Democratic primary— and, you know, mess with their results. So I have, I have several thoughts on that. So one, that's funny. I wish I had to come up with it. That's a funny idea. The fact that re- a bunch of Republicans, of which I am not one, a bunch of Republicans are, don't have anything to do on primary day, and we have this open primary system, they can go vote. You know, I, I don't like Rush Limbaugh much uh, any, anymore. Uh, it's been years since I've listened to him, and I'm not, not a fan of the little clips I hear from him most of the time, but... He did that thing in 2008 called Operation Chaos when Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton were facing off, and he he was encouraging listeners in those later primary states. I mean, uh, John McCain had already won the nomination, and so he was like, Republicans, go out and vote for Hillary Clinton. Make this process longer and more arduous for the Democratic Party. I think it's sort of what Wayne is saying here. Uh, but there is one other piece of that that's interesting to me, and that's called justice. I live... In, my listenership is not, I think it is primarily South Carolina. I can see the metrics a little bit, but it is not purely South Carolina. We live in an open primary state, for those that don't know, 
which means you can only vote in one primary, but if you're a registered Democrat, you can show up and vote for, in the Republican primary and vice versa. But you can't go vote in the Republican and the Democratic primary. You have to pick one. And there is no doubt that Republican races in this state have been affected, maybe the outcome affected, by Democrats coming over and voting in the Republican primaries. And so that's really never happened to the Democrats. And so it, there is some kind of poetic justice in Wayne's idea, because they have messed up a bunch of Republican primaries. If you're an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth for a tooth guy, and I'm not, I'm a forgiveness guy, but if you're into that, there is at least some justice in that, and it's kind of funny. So thanks, Wayne, for the email, and it's a funny idea. When we come back, Pastor Matt Chandler from the Village Church has some interesting news about your smartphone. He covered it in a sermon of all things. We'll talk about that when we come back for the rest of the Corey Truax Show. Shout out to Taylor Wooten, good friend, I think a listener to the show. Uh, he pointed me towards a group of people who do these tributes on piano. So just play a song from an, an artist, but just play a piano version. And that's what you were just hearing, uh, a tribute to Reliant K. And while I'm at it, shout out to all the Wooten brothers, Gentry and Wesley. Uh, I, think, I think most of them listen, or at least I hope so. Anyway, thanks for the recommendation. I have, oh, uh, two more things, and then I'm going to get into this Matt Chandler a one. Next week, if all goes according to plan, I will be sitting down with someone for a very special episode. We're going to talk about first mental health from a Christian perspective, and then we're going to have as the back half of that conversation, we're going to talk about the Enneagram. I've mentioned it on the show before, uh, but we're going to talk about the Enneagram as a tool for self-growth and for uh, for knowing knowing ourselves better and for knowing others better and how to interact. Uh, so it's going to be a different show, right? First, it's going to be conversation style. I'm going to have a second person on, and we're not doing politics. We're not doing theology. We're not doing anything like that. We're going to talk about mental health in an age where we definitely need to be talking about it. As we are more depressed and higher anxiety and higher suicide rates than we've ever been, we should talk about it. So we're going to have uh, a long discussion on that and it should be fruitful. The last thing before we get into this Matt Chandler audio is, hey, would you do me a favor? Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Look for me, Corey Truax. Find me there, and you will be a happier person because of it. And if you would share the show with others, and I mean that. Like, I say it every week, and I wonder, have you? Have you? Have you told anybody in your life, hey, here's a guy, talks a lot and very fast, but if you're going to spend 50 minutes listening to a podcast or an hour listening to a radio show... You're getting more for your time because he talks so fast, you get more content. And so I, I, don't, I shouldn't have to come up with the, the pitch for you guys. You should come up with the pitch yourself and tell other folks about the show. Okay, here we go. Matt Chandler, my favorite. I mean, I, I love my pastor, and he's my favorite. After that, it's Matt Chandler. Uh, he pa pastors the Village Church down in Dallas, Texas. Actually, I believe it's technically in Flower Mound, but everything around Dallas is called Dallas. He was, he was actually doing a sermon on prayer, but he was talking about one of the uh, big obstacles to prayer in the Christian life is how we all look at our phones every 20 seconds. We just can't stop looking at our screens. Our, they have rewired our brains. I know this about myself. I mentioned on the show, I am addicted to my phone. I know that I am. I'm working on it. I got some of the apps, and I have diminished my per-day 
hours looking at it by by a good chunk. I mean, I, I'm down to about four hours a day that I'm staring at this stupid screen, and I'm going to continue to work on getting it down. In any event, uh, he talked about it as an an obstacle to our prayer lives is how distracted we are, and that one of the things that has distracted us so much is our phones, and it's rewired our brains. So he then gets to an illustration of some real information that I had a little bit of, but he does a good job of building it out. So here you go, Pastor Matt Chandler from Village Church, on the relationship you have to your smartphone. Get one, right? As the smartphone became pervasive, there was a group of programmers and sociologists who started to view attention, your attention, as a commodity, right? You only have so much of it. So in their designs and as they built it out, they made you what was meant to be consumed by your phone. So you're for sale. I'm going to pop in there real quick. I've made this statement before. There are, there are literally engineers and designers and tech people in Silicon Valley right now trying to figure out a way to keep you on your phone. There are app designers right now that are designing ways, divining ways, to keep you glued to whatever game you downloaded to whatever social media app you're using, to whatever dating app you're sliding left or right, swiping left or right on, they are they are trying to study the your you to make sure that you don't put your phone down. Why? Because then they can sell you. Your eyes being on your screen means there can be an ad. There's an advertisement. They can sell that. They they can sell data about every, people who pe- people who play this game also. Uh, because when you click ter- the terms and agreement button, every time you download one of these apps, you're basically saying, you guys can dig into my phone and see everything else about me. And so it's cross-sections. For example, let's just say people who play Candy Crush often also have the Target app on their phone. And so Target wants to buy ad- ads on Candy Crush because they know the app is already on your phone. And so Candy Crush can go to Target and say, hi, guys. You know, a lot of our users have your app on their phone too. You want to buy some ads with us? And so there's literally people, it's their job to find ways to keep your attention so they can sell access to you. You're for sale to programmers and to all sorts of, so, so let me tell you how it works. It's fascinating and terrifying. If you play games on your phone, they know exactly how many times you need to fail a level before you give up on it. Which is why when you're playing uh, whatever's big now, right? When you're, let's go old school. When you're playing Angry Birds, you're like, oh, I can't beat this level. They know just how many times you'll lose that level before you walk away and never play again. And so right before you're about to go, they let you in. One, I got to make one quick statement. I, have, I, don't, I haven't played a, a game on my phone in a long time. It's, it's, it's been years, probably 2012, 2013. But I... I think I've actually experienced that. But consider for a moment, that's a meeting happening in Silicon Valley. Folks have designed a game. Their profit motive is to just get you to play the game. They need you on your phone playing the game. And they're having a staff meeting, and they say, well, you know, level 28 is pretty hard. What we're finding is the average user will try it for seven times, and then they'll quit. And so we can't let them quit, so we probably need to make it... uh, just easier, just easy enough to where you can get it on your sixth time. Because we definitely don't want you to just do the one time because then it's too easy and you're going to keep going through our levels. We need to make it, we just need to maximize your time playing this game. This is literally happening 
There are people who are d- designing ways to try to keep you on there as long as, as they can. Isn't that shady and awesome <laughs> and awful? So there are these algorithms that are running because, look at me, you have been sold. You know, you can't even have a conversation in your house before all your ads start being that thing you had a conversation about. Why doesn't that terrify the mess out of us? Are you like, man, I'd love to get a new pair of boots. And then you're like on Instagram, you're like, oh, well, okay. Boots, 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 boots. <laughs> right? This is, listen, this is, this is an attention economy that your phone is selling you. And it leads to lives that are unexamined. It leads to us marinating in mediocrity. It leads to prayerlessness. Like, gosh, have you ever stopped at a light and just like your phone just like is screaming at you? I have 100% experienced that. And so while this is, I I should expand on that. I'm, I'm talking, driving to work every morning. I stop at a stoplight. It is almost a compulsion. Grab it. Just grab it. Just Just see. And I've, I've been able to stop myself lately. I don't do that anymore. But he's now getting to the point of why this matters. So yeah, it's interesting information and it's creepy information about the how the smartphone is playing a role in our lives, but it's also affecting us. When he talked about these lives of mediocrity, yeah, there's prayerlessness for those that are listening to me and we're believers. I mean, just consider the amount of time you just scroll on your phone where there's actual spiritual development that could be happening in your own life. But th- this idea of mediocrity, we just we end up being okay with things we, other not, we otherwise would not be okay with because we're just allowing our attention to be divided in these little menial things and we're not thinking about the big questions of life. Here's a little bit more from Matt Chandler. At you. Like, something might have happened in the last two minutes. Pick me up. You've got time. Anybody this week missed a light because the person in front of them was doing that? Anybody this week was the person that made the guy behind you? Right? So righteous. Um, so this is a problem. And, and listen, I am not, I do this every time I talk about this stuff, I am not anti-tech. I am preaching from an iPad Pro. Right? I journal from this. I, I research in this. I, I love to. I have an Instagram. I'm on I'm just careful. You just got to be careful. And that's a good word. Let us be people who stop letting life happen to us. This is probably something we need to be talking about more. I would say the majority of us, the majority of us are on the phone too much. We're on our devices too much. Guys, we, we haven't, done the work culturally to know what even we're doing. We, we invented these things 11 years ago. It's, and then consider how pervasive they are. I stopped at a Zaxby's on my way to Birmingham, Alabama, and it, it occurred to me as I was waiting for my food. I stopped at a Zaxby's because I'm a smart guy. It's, gosh, that place is great. And I'm hot take, better than Chick-fil-A. It is a better, better place than Chick-fil-A. It, I, I saw distinctly as I was waiting for my food to come out, two families seated around tables, and 
while there was definitely some conversation happening, that was great. I saw some adults distracted on their phone and some of the some of the kids. But at both tables, I saw seated in front of toddlers with its own stand, an iPad running videos. If you're using one of those, I'm not going to criticize you. Like th- this is what, but this is what we did. We decided having a kid at the table is annoying because they need attention and they sure they want to interact and sometimes they're loud. So what's the easiest thing for me? Well, I'm going to slap a iPad in front of her and let that parent my kid for a little while. I- I'm not. Listen, I'm not a parent. I'm. I don't. I don't want to lay judgment on anybody. But the question being asked there was not what is best for the kid. The question being asked there was what's best for me. And again, we are doing that. We are just putting these screens in front of kids. We have no idea what the effect is on on their brains and cognitive ability. We've only had these things so ubiquitous in the culture for 11 years. We're only now, just 11 years in, starting to see how it has affected our attention spans, how how it has affected... Next week, we're doing a show on depression and anxiety. It's a lot of other mental health things, but are you tell? You can't be telling me that you don't recognize that one of the causes in the uptick in our depression is the fact that we can now see everyone's lives on display, and and then we go and seek it out. Like, we are actually going on our devices to see what vacation these people went on and who that person is dating and how what, what, what uh, this person getting married and the, the, this, this, the kids they're, they're having. And then we all put on our feeds the best moments of our lives. We put our highlight reels up there, and we, we even fake good times. We never actually honest. And so... All we see is everyone's life is so great. And now I think we're even getting some perspective. We are recognizing that people don't act, people aren't actually being honest on social media and on their 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 public facing internet uh, presence. But we're only now realizing that, and it ha- it has to have been part of what's affected our mental health so much when it comes to the depression stuff. I mean, the the amount of things people are now, I'll say it this way. Pre-smartphone, you really had no idea what you were missing, <laughs> right? Like, you didn't know what people were doing. And if they didn't tell you, like, you, you, you didn't even know you missed out. And now you see there's so much going on and so much to be doing, and you're either sitting at home just scrolling on your phone, or you get so freaked out by, I want to do all the things, and I can't do the things I have to choose. It's, it's affected our brains, guys. It's affected our, it has affected, I think, our happiness. Most certainly, our atten- the attention spans have plummeted in adults. Like, and we just, we, we use these screens without a lot of thought. And one of the things we're supposed to be doing as Christians is thinking deeply. We're supposed to be a circumspect people and introspective. And one of the things these, these phones do, is done it to me, is it gives us time for thoughtlessness, mindlessness. Well, we're not being thoughtful. We're not engaging with the world around us. We're not engaging with our families. And very, very importantly, we're not engaging with ourselves. And most certainly, it's a detriment to engaging with a relationship with God. 
It can also be an incredible tool for that, by the way. I mentioned on the show, I'm in the gym every morning, and every morning in the gym, I'm listening to a sermon. That's what I do when I'm at the gym. That's important for my spiritual discipleship. On the way to work, I might listen to another sermon or a Christian podcast, or sometimes I'll actually just get the Bible app out and let, let the app read to me in the car on the way, read the Bible to me on the way to work. Like It can also be a great tool. But that's what Matt, Matt's last word there was, I'm, I'm not anti-tech, I'm into tech, but... I'm also careful. And so I think it's a good word for us all. We, we use the phones too much. We haven't talked about it enough. We haven't acknowledged how much of a significant role they play in our lives. And this is not true of all of us, it's, but I bet it's true of most of us. And we need to think about it and actually respond to it. All right, in the somewhat similar vein here in the last uh, about three or four minutes of this segment, one of my favorite podcasts is called Radio Lab. It's from WNYC. Uh, really interesting stories come out of there. It's a, really a science podcast mostly, but they do incredible storytelling. Just some of the best and most interesting, compelling stories you're ever going to hear anywhere. I was listening to an episode of them recently. They were uh, interviewing the guy who runs Cleveland.com. And so the Cleveland Plain Dealer, that was the one of the largest newspapers in the country at, at, the, at one time, it's Cleveland's largest newspaper. When they were going online, because you know newspaper sales plummeted, you know, that was mid two thousands, and all the newspapers are now online. They started Cleveland.com, and on the podcast they were interviewing the guy that was tasked with starting up Cleveland.com and running it. And he talked about how they figured out the audience for online news. It was so different than the audience for the paper when they were doing traditional news. And so they started having the metrics of, again, how long are they staying on the site? How, what They asked this question. This, this freaked me out. They started asking the question, what do our readers want? That is not a journalistic question. Jur- journalists and newspapers, you're not supposed to ask, what do our readers, what do our viewers want? You're supposed to go find true and important things and just say true and important things. But that's, it changed the news. Like this, this world we're living in now, it changed how news is done. The point is to get, to get readers, to get the highest ratings, to get the most clicks. And so they, they started talking about how, well, you know, in a newspaper setting, we might have a story that we're pretty confident in, but the, the rigorous fact-checking we would go through, it could take days or weeks to get a story out. But because we know the nature of being first on the Internet, being the first one to the story, how many clicks you can get, the... The amount of editing and the amount of fact-checking just plummeted. It, it diminished greatly because we got to be first. If, if, we, if we're mostly sure we're right, let's just go because we need to get the first clicks on this. That means we'll get the most clicks, and then we're going to be added to the aggregation website so that people are coming to us. It was an incredible insider view of one of the ways news changed. One of the ways news changed is w- once you go online, the, the game for speed overtook the uh, the game of speed overtook the need for accuracy in the news. Same thing happened with cable news because it used to be you had a news hour at what 6:30 for the national news and then you might get your local news at like 11. So there maybe be there might be an hour of news. You start 24-hour news channels at Fox and CNN and MSNBC. Well, you got to fill it in with something. We got we got to have something to keep eyeballs on the screen, and so you start filling it in with a lot of frivolity and a lot of stupidity. 
You start filling it in with a lot of dumb arguments. You start filling it in with partisanship, and it, it it's it's hurt our culture. And so I'm not anti-tech either. I'm firmly a millennial. I I'm recording, guys. I'm recording a podcast on two computers. I was running Matt Chandler's audio through my iPhone. Like I, I'm obviously not an anti-tech guy, but it is occurring to me more and more. We did not think deeply about this enough before we just dove in on it. It's a theme on the show sometimes. Science typically asks, can we? And we very rarely ask, should we? And so, I'm going to close this segment out. We'll come back and talk about, I think, uh, I, have a, I have a personal thought, and also we'll probably get into the Kanye West thing. Let's just be a people introspective and circumspective about how we're using technology and the role that it plays in our lives and do do that internal inventory about the things that matter to us and let's check to see how much technology is affecting the things that truly deeply matter to us we'll be back with more of the Corey Truex show in just a moment stick with us welcome back to the Corey Truex show glad you are here for the final segment right before the break I said I had a personal word and what I mean by that is uh, where should we start? Let's start here. the The show, like last week, was super political. So glad it's not this week. I might do one thing at the end here regarding a brewing scandal, but so glad it's not been. But, but this week before that, we we talked about capitalism a good bit, and I did get, I did get some email responses. I had some personal friends who listened to the show talk to me about this some too. And when I say a personal word, what I mean is I am a little annoyed, and I'm more annoyed than I typically am. I'm typically not annoyed at, at things, and I, I disagree well. I can typically see when uh, I can see when my, quote, side, like my side of an argument makes an immature argument. I'm good at those things. I'm good at seeing fallacious arguments. Like, I, I understand... I understand argumentation. I understand conflict resolution. The Lord's been good to teach me these things, and I've had some great tools in those things. And so I, I am surprised by how... I am surprised at what I'm about to say. That is the easiest way to say it. The thing that's about to come out of my mouth, I'm surprised at myself. Because I've heard people say stuff like this before, and I rolled my eyes because it sounded very immature to me. It was an immature argument. But as I have been dealing with some folks through email and in uh, in person regarding capitalism and my defense of free markets, because free markets are good. They have led to the good things in your life. All the stuff that you like in your life, they've primarily been driven by this, capitalism. It It was the idea of someone having the motive to make money, and they did a thing where they could make money, and they also lived in a capitalist system that protected their property, so they know they can make money and keep it, so it motivated people. This is actually one of the points I was making. Is It's incredible we came up with a system where well, selfishness is not good, but even if someone is, if someone is super selfish, and like they're, all they're thinking is, I want to make a bunch of money and have a bunch of stuff. And they ask, well, how do I do that? When the actual logical answer is, do something that helps people. Create something Create a product that makes everyone's lives better. Do that, and you'll make an incre- incredible amount of money. Like, what a system. 
What a system that does not say that selfishness is good, but one of the ways we actually turned selfishness into a thing that could actually serve mankind, and it has. And so here's what's coming out of my mouth that surprises me. I'm at that spot where I think I'm ready to say to the folks who hate capitalism and want to talk about being more socialist, like the Bernie Sanders types and Elizabeth Warren types and those that think we just need more government doing more stuff, I think I'm ready to say it. You all need to give up your iPhones. You need to give up your Androids. You need to give up your GPS devices. You need to Because those satellites in outer space, the military helped a little, but you know who did that? The private sector. We were the ones, those of us in capitalism, because we wanted to make money, we decided, you know what we need? We need satellites in outer space. We need to map the planet so we can help people get where they're going. You need to, you need to give all of it up. All the, Stop going to Starbucks. Fast food is finished for you. Because that's what capitalism did. Capitalism built this world where you get cheap food, where you have it at, at on demand. People will bring it to your house, where you have basically everything you would want in, a, in your device, in your, in your pocket. One of the things that occurred to me here recently, how cheap water is. Well, now, granted, there's when you do uh, wa- when you do water in your house, that's a utility and government's involved and all that. Like, one of the fundamental things in life, water. It, you would think it would be really, think it'd be a really hard thing to get. It is so, so easy. Electricity is fairly affordable. And again, that's a utility, but it is private companies that, put, that, that made that happen. Uh, guys, guys, Wi-Fi. Not just Wi-Fi, but the fact that the Internet is basically just in the air around us. We have 4G, and we're soon to be 5G. I, I'm back to that spot where I, I want to say, to the anti-capitalists and the socialist, the socialist folks, you stop it. Be consistent. Stop using the fruits of capitalism if you're going to hate on it all the time. And again, I used to roll my eyes uh, during the what was that movement called? Occupy Wall Street. Yeah, back in oh, whatever it was, uh, back after the financial crisis in oh seven, oh eight, all that. There was the Occupy Wall Street people, and they would get made fun of sometimes by people on my side because they were saying, you know, they're they're complaining about capitalism from their iPhone as they tweet about it. And it was they're, they're saying, Here, here's Apple, a profit-driven company. That's why they exist. They exist to make money, and that's why they make all this cool stuff we love so much. And they're tweeting this company that existed to make money. That was their profit motive, and that's how they're getting their, their message out. And so there, there was some irony there. And I used to roll my eyes like, yeah, whatever, I don't. I was I was I didn't find it compelling, but I'm at that spot. I'm getting so annoyed by th- that group. It's just you know what? Stop! Stop! You stop using the fruits of capitalism. I demand it, or be quiet. You, th- those should be your options. Now, is that fair of me? Probably not. But that's that's where I'm getting. Is if you're going to complain about capitalism, stop benefiting from it. That should only be fair. One more thought on this that occurred to me. I have a new argument. A new argument against socialized medicine. The argument, I think I don't think I did this on the show recently. If I did, I apologize. If the argument for socialized medicine is it should be a right because if you don't have it, you'll die. Now, granted, there's gradations, right? If you don't get a cavity filled, you probably won't die. If you don't get the right contacts, you don't have access to an op- op- ophthalmologist. Is that what eye doctors are called? You're not. You're not going to die. So. I wish that the folks who are pro-socialized medicine would make that clear. At what point is it a right? At what point should you have to pay? Is it life or death stuff, or is it you've got a cult? 
What, what is, when, when is it not a right? But let me say this. If healthcare is a right because it's a human necessity, I, don't, I can't imagine why food isn't the first thing on your list. Why isn't food a right? If you look at the, the human history that we know of, so let's go back to ancient Sumer, and we come through to the modern day. It might be the most common reason humans have died is starvation. It's a fundamental need, but you guys, you don't call that a right. I don't, apparently, I don't have a right to my most fundamental need, food. That's supposed to be provided to me by the government. The government should be delivering me food because if I don't have it, I'll die. And the reason you don't is because it is cheap. It's cheap to get food, and we and we do have access to it. And so the definition of right is irrational. It's inconsistent. So that's my new argument against socialized medicine. You just want listen. Our, our, again, our medical system is terrible, but quit calling it a right. Words have definitions, and that's not one of them. What else did I want to do? Here we go. Kanye West. Two or three of you email me about this. I have a very short response. Kanye West is making a profession of faith. I mean, he is saying things that sound Christian. I'll admit it. He, obviously, I'm skeptical. But the words he is saying sound like a convert. He also showed up to a church, I think in the Atlanta area, and did like a worship set, which that the church that did that, that was a terrible idea. So, you know, specifically, going, I'm, gonna, uh, I'm going to transmit a pastoral requirement here. I think, I think it does apply. In Timothy, I think chapter 3, 1 Timothy chapter 3, when the requirements for an elder, the requirements for someone who's going to lead a church are being laid out, one of them is he shouldn't be a new convert. Otherwise, he'll get puffed up. So don't move someone to from, don't move someone from. I'm now following Jesus. I've been following Jesus for a couple of weeks. Don't move that person to pastor quickly. That that's one of the things that the Bible tells us. And a leading worship somewhere is not being a pastor. But this is this is a good word of caution. It is uh, let's 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 slow down first. Let let's see if we see fruit manifest before we start putting him on stages and telling people to follow him. Apparently, Justin Bieber as well has made some statement of faith. I mean, I, I read that, and it looks... The words are correct, okay? The word, the words are the right words. So for those that sit the story in, here's all I have to say about Kanye West and Justin Bieber. I'm skeptical, but I also want it to be true. I, it would be so... I would be so overjoyed, not because celebrities converted to, to Christianity... But because anytime any anyone converts in Christianity to the poorest of us, to the richest of us, to the to the most mundane, those are the most mundane lives, and no profile to those are the highest profile, most exciting lives. When anyone crosses from death to life, it is a good thing. It's a joyous and wonderful occasion. And so, my I'm skeptical, but I want it to be true, and I would advise just slowly watching and waiting. Because you know what happens for real converts? They start to show fruit. Certain behaviors and certain language and certain associations, they start to to come off of that new believer, and they start to adopt new attitudes and new beliefs and new practices and, and new communities to be around. And so I'm skeptical, I'm hopeful, and I'm watchful. That's what I am, and I hope it proves to be true. This actually 
gives a, a tangent. It wasn't in my notes. This is the thing about Christian culture that annoys me so much. The the Western American, the, uh, the, let's go not Western, American, the American Christian, for some reason, needs to be validated by celebrities thinking what they think or believing what they think. It has always gotten on my nerves, and it's always mystified me. Like, how much Christians get excited when a famous person says they're a Christian? And they need them to be. Like, they need Tim Tebow to be a believer. Because apparently it means, like, G- Jesus is great, but man, what about Tim Tebow? It means I'm okay to be a Christian because Tim Tebow is. Or who was the other, uh, is it Ca- Cameron, Candace Cameron Bure? Uh, she was on Full House or whatever. And she's a Christian, so I could be one too. And it makes, it's all going to be cool because celebrities are Christians too. And look how awesome it would be. Like Kanye West and Justin Bieber, those guys are hip and rad, man. And so there could be Christian time, one, two. Guys, that's not who we've been. Literally at any point, if you're you're a believer, where we've been, in the cultures we've been in, throughout our history, we have never been the chic. We have never been the popular. That is not who we are. We have a countercultural message wherever we are. Literally wherever we are on planet Earth and in all of time, we are saying all of your loyalties and all of the systems and structures in which you live, we live by another. We follow a different king. We follow a different culture. Like that's... We are a countercultural message. That is Christianity. And the, the, the amount of Christians that need celebrities to be Christians always blows my mind. All right, final thing is political. There is a scandal a-brewing. Now, from the moment I'm recording, God knows the next two or three days before this thing, actually, before this show goes public, big things happen. And so if, if I'm late to something, that's just the nature of podcasting. There's some whistleblower somewhere inside the government that is that we're trying to figure out. It, it, there's some chance that he has he's blowing a whistle on Donald Trump. Here's what the rumor is that Donald Trump asked the Ukrainian government to look into Joe Biden's son's business dealings because there's there's some weird stuff there. It's definitely some shady things. Uh, it's hard to put a put a finger on what actually took place. That's maybe why Donald Trump want, wants them to look into it. Um, there, there's a chance that there's a whistleblower that has evidence that that happened. If that did happen, to be, I'm going to go ahead and lay it down now, that's impeachable. If you, if you go to a foreign government and ask them to spy on or otherwise investigate a domestic political opponent that is, I don't know what, I, mean, I call it a high crime and misdemeanor, uh, certainly, it's un- it's beyond unethical. It probably is against some kind of law. I don't know what the law would be. Uh, yeah, you can't do that. You can't go to foreign governments and ask them to do damage to a domestic political opponent, and that would absolutely be impeachable. It's setting up here a potential. Like this could get really ugly and to the extent that, like, I even had a moment on my drive to Birmingham, as I mentioned a minute ago or a while ago. Um, just praying for peace uh, in the country. If here's the conflict we might be running into, where House Democrats want to hear from this whistleblower, and the executive branch says, "No, he did his whistleblower thing. He's been heard from by the Department of Justice. They have found that his claim has no credibility, but we did the investigation." matter is resolved and over. 
And Democrats say back, well, we, we want under oath someone to come talk about that. We want to know what that investigation was like. We want to know who investigated what. We, we want to know what the claim was and what the work what work was done to determine whether or not it was true. Like we really want to dig in on this. And the executive branch of Trump says back, no, we're not doing that. We're not sending anybody. The matter's been resolved. At that point, you're going to get uh, subpoenas are going to fly, man. And then judges have to decide what. The uh, the oversight, uh, it, I don't even know how it would fall. I mean, the Congress is supposed to do oversight of the executive, executive branch. And so if there was a claim against the executive branch that never left the executive branch, it was only investigated inside of it, that's rough, man. And I, I don't know what a judge would decide. We've never had this, I don't think we've ever had this situation in American history. I'm trying to th- think through my vast knowledge of American history. But I, I can't think of I can't think of of anything like this. So th- we'll keep monitoring it, and by the time this show comes out, maybe this thing will have developed even further. And uh, th- we should pray for peace. That's where I think I'll, I'll leave to leave this today, uh, because it could it could get ugly out there if we end up with that kind of conflict between these parties and the personalities involved and the very cultic. There's cults in two directions. Like the pro-Trump group is very cultic. They really love this guy, and the anti-Trump people are are also very cultic. There's a there's a hatred for him that 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 is extreme. There's a love for him that is extreme. Both of them are unhealthy, and if we start putting those people in conflict with each other, with some very high stakes, yeah, it could get ugly in the country. And I don't want to live in that country. I don't want my kids, or my my nephews and, and nieces, to live in that country. Like it's. We don't need that kind of conflict, so we should pray against it. Now, again, next week, give you a preview. I'm going to sit down with a friend who has a great deal of background in this, and we're going to have a very honest conversation about mental health in the country, how the church has responded to it, what we've done well, what we've done poorly. And then we're we're going to talk about the Enneagram and that tool uh, for better self-knowledge and better healthy interpersonal relationships as well. So anticipate that one. It will be back uh, next week. Until next time, everybody, peace and love.